You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Hello, and welcome to Caveat, the Cyberwire's law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hi, Ben. How you doing, Dave? We've got some good headlines to share, and later in the show, we've got my interview with Kim Fan. She's a data security lawyer who'll be discussing the effects of Nevada's new cybersecurity legislation that recently went into effect. I want to remind you that while this show covers legal topics, and Ben is a lawyer... The views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. And now, a message from CyberBit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need CyberBit. CyberBit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. CyberBit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Ben, I'm going to kick things off for us this week. Uh, interesting story came by. This was on Forbes, written by Marty Swant. And the article is, Andrew Yang proposes digital data should be treated like a property right. Of course, Andrew Yang is uh, presidential hopeful, one of the many Democratic contestants. And uh, he released a policy proposal outlining uh, how data should be collected, um, basically saying that our data should be ours. Uh, It sounds a lot like GDPR with uh, right to have things deleted, right for notification, um, what's your take on this? Although I'm not a member of the official online Yang gang, um, <laughs> I, I think this is a really interesting and potentially promising uh, policy proposal. Uh, my first reaction is making data a property right conforms with a lot of constitutional scholars, including most notably uh, Justice Neil Gorsuch, hmm. who has talked extensively about looking to positive physical property-based law uh, as a framework to consider data privacy. And I think this proposal is is an extension of that. Well, let's back up a little bit. And can you just describe to us, what does it mean when something is considered physical property? So physical property comes with a bunch of rights. One of them is somebody can't trespass on your property. Hmm. Um, you know, you have something like bailment, where if I give the valet my keys, yes, he holds those keys, but it's not his. He can't go out and give them to somebody else. I'm entrusting him. Uh, with those keys. They're still technically my property, um, but I've entrusted them to somebody else. Oh, interesting. Uh, And then, you know, other things that come with property rights are uh, obviously the monetary value. That's why we own physical property in the first place. We have the right to to buy and sell that property. Um, We have the right to gift that property to somebody else if uh, if we so choose. 
Um, and so those are the basic rights that come with owning physical property. And I think they can be reasonably extended to the concept of, of data privacy. And I think that's what um, Andrew Yang is trying to do with this proposal. Hmm. Are there practical implications? What's the other side of this? Uh, I would say, first of all, the, the tech companies would probably be more encouraged by a proposal like this simply because it's coming at the national level. Hmm. They're very wary about states going in and pra- uh, passing their own data privacy legislation because from a compliance standpoint, it's very difficult to comply with 50 separate state statutes on data privacy. So having a national proposal would be, from the, the tech companies, a, a good start. Hmm. Um, of course, they derive a lot of value from the personal information that we share online. They frequently sell it to advertisers. The government, in some circumstances, can have access to that information for intelligence or law enforcement purposes. From the tech company's perspective, this would be a major financial hit on them. Mm-hmm. The personal information that we voluntarily convey to these to these websites is one of the ways that these companies make money. Uh, so if we were to enact robust privacy rights and these companies no longer had the right or ability, according to federal law, to sell our data, to uh, collect data on us and give it to advertisers, political campaigns, whomever sees value in that personal data, that's a lot of revenue lost. And eventually that revenue, the revenue loss is going to filter down to the rest of us who aren't in tech companies. Hmm. You know, why are most websites free for me to look at? Well, there's advertising based on what Google collects about my search history. Right, right. Um, And, you know, that's how I'm able to read an article on BuzzFeed because they pay the bills by by having access to my personal data. So that's sort of the other side of this. Now, how much influence does something like this actually have? I mean, we've got a, this is a presidential hopeful. He's not a front runner. Um, so at most, this contributes to a greater conversation from from their side of the aisle when it comes to these issues? Yeah, I think it's the, the start of a conversation. And it's sort of, um, you talk about the Overton window. So that's like the range of ideas that are in public consideration. Mm. I think the Overton window to this point has not really thought of data in the same terms as other tangible property. You know, part of it is that with our every activity, we are forced to voluntarily share this information with these third parties, these uh, data companies. So, you know, in that sense, it's always sort of been thought of as separate and distinct from your common law uh, property. So even putting out this proposal gets people to think about what the implications would be of giving people personal privacy in the data that, they, that they're submitting to these uh, companies. Now, how bipartisan are these sorts of movements? Is, is there momentum from both sides that privacy is something that's going to have to be addressed? This is one of those horseshoe issues where hmm. you sort of see agreement from the, the polls of each political party. I think some of the stronger libertarian elements in the Republican Party, most notably, and he has since left the Republican Party, but Representative Justin Amash uh, has been a major advocate of, of data privacy longtime uh, opponent of surveillance. Generally, it's it's a view more traditionally espoused by Democrats. Um, but frankly, it's also a view that's going to be affected by one's own constituency. A representative from somebody somewhere like Silicon Valley or anywhere else where um, some of these companies have a large political presence, 
then you're going to be reticent to do away with that potential uh, revenue stream. So I think there's the potential for something like this to be bipartisan. I think there's sort of a almost like a centrist tendency to be deferential to the tech companies. We want to maintain Hmm. a good relationship with them, partially because they help us in terms of law enforcement, intelligence gathering. We want to see them as as our partners and not our uh, adversaries. So I think that's why you haven't seen a lot of proposals like this. Although I will say something you saw in this article is that Amy Klobuchar, uh, another Democratic candidate for president, uh, proposed something somewhat similar, although not as strong as as this Andrew Yang proposal. Um, so it's it's getting out there, which is, I, I think, a step in the right direction. Hmm. All right. Well, uh, that's my story this week. What do you have to share with us? So this was a really interesting one uh, a couple weeks ago came through Motherboard by Vice. I know we've uh, talked about a lot of their articles since we've Mm -hmm. been doing podcast segments. And this is about a company that built a giant private surveillance network that's largely run by repo men. Uh, So this is called a digital recognition network. It's Mm -hmm. not run by the government, although law enforcement, if they uh, can get some sort of administrative subpoena, could potentially have access to it. Hmm. But Really, it's a, a private surveillance system, and it's crowdsourced. So all across the country, when people are driving on the street, there is a database of cars that have been tagged to be repossessed. If uh, you work in that industry, uh, it's often sort of a cat and mouse game to find these vehicles. Mm. If you have a, a network, which is what this uh, digital recognition network is, all the other repo men and other private agencies across the country are constantly taking pictures of the vehicles that they see and are uploading uh, the license plates into this giant database. You know, if you put in a license plate that you're looking for and it's been tagged, you'll be able to geolocate exactly where that car has been. Uh, and it'll help you as a company in your efforts for uh, repossession. And this is a nationwide surveillance database, it can track. Uh, cars over long periods. So, for example, if you entered this license plate into the database, you could see its various locations over the past several months. You could map out a person's private interactions. You know, probably this, figure out where I live, but maybe exactly. also where where I go to the doctor, where I shop, what stores I visit, what where I like to stop on the way home from work to get a to have a beer. Exactly. Uh, What I think is even more troubling about this is they're not just taking pictures of license plates if they are suspecting those cars of uh, being under the threat of repossession. They're actually taking a picture of pretty much every license plate they come across. Mm -hmm. So when a truck's driving across an interstate, it has a camera attached that's constantly reading license plates and uploading them into the database. They've claimed to have more than 9 billion license plate scans. Um, Which is more... More than people people uh, on the planet. planet. And while this is only supposed to be available for the agencies that would use it, uh, the company has admitted that people who uh, are not supposed to have access to that database have been able to access it. And once you do access it, you obviously have a a wealth of information at your disposal. Um, I have thought about uh, surveillance of, of spurned lovers that mm-hmm. could be used through this database. Well, I can imagine calling up my local repo man and uh, greasing his palms a little bit and saying, where's my ex-girlfriend or boyfriend been in the past couple weeks? Absolutely. And go check this database. I know it's in there. They've been taking, taking pictures uh, of all these cars. 
Now, I could see there also being a, a good side to this, in the, sort of the, the amber alert side of the coin, where if someone had kidnapped someone, say, for example, that you could use this, you know, cast a net for, to try to, uh, to save someone. Absolutely. So there are always beneficial uses to any mass surveillance system, and that's, that's certainly one of them. From the perspective of the companies that do repo work, this is an invaluable tool. I mean, prior to this type of technology existing, it would require massive financial resources, human intelligence, private investigators to try and find some of these difficult-to-find uh, vehicles. Mm-hmm. And now it's available at, at your fingertips for a relatively low cost. Um, they only charge, so you have to be a member, uh, but they only charge $20 to look up a license plate and $70 for a live alert. The hmm. live alert would mean that, you know, so I put my license plate, I put a license plate number in, I would get pinged on my phone or my device mm-hmm. every time that license plate was read. So you can imagine somebody trying to hightail it to a different state. I, I could say, all right, they're in West Virginia now, they're in Pennsylvania, and I get right. that alert every single time it comes on my phone. So let me unpack this a little bit and, and take it to the absurd example that might help provide a little clarity, hopefully. I can imagine if I were walking around my local shopping mall parking lot with my camera and I was standing behind every car in the parking lot, just going from car to car, taking a picture of every license plate, take a picture, move on, take a picture, move on. I might attract attention. Absolutely. Someone might call the police. Yeah, they, they probably come should. Have a, they, be... might have a, they might have a conversation with me about what I'm up to. That's pretty suspicious. Yeah, right. I, I'd go up to you. <laughs> but but if I were driving around with one of these uh, these cameras mounted to the trunk of my car, uh, no problem. Yeah, it's it seems relatively innocuous. I would have never known that this uh, system existed until I saw this article. Mm-hmm. I think that's true for most people. So it's not like... Everybody's aware generally that you know there are trucks going around reading your license plate and putting them into a to a giant database, mm-hmm. and it's just so effortless. Um, What's to keep me from having one of these cameras at the end of my driveway and logging every car that drives by the street in front of my house? No, no issue there, right? No legal issue. There would be no legal issue there. Mm-hmm. So of course you have to pay to be a part of the network. Right. Um, if you're willing to pay that cost, and I think they put it at something like fifteen thousand dollars. You know, which is relatively large for an individual, but relatively small for a company that does repo work. Or right. say, an insurance company. I mean, they mention here insurance companies always want to know if uh, cars actually drive the majority of of the time in different states. Um, hmm. So sometimes it's cheaper to insure your car in say Maryland than it would be to insure it in Virginia. Oh right. So you right. could be living in Virginia permanently, but you'd have your car insured in Maryland. So there's you could see how this would be useful for those companies so they can buy access to this database um, and can do uh, queries and, and targeting. But the, the big picture here, or the, the big issue here, I suppose, is that you really aren't entitled to any privacy in terms of your license plate number when you're out and about driving your car publicly, right? No. I mean, and this would concern me from a law enforcement perspective, too. Uh, my read of the law is that the government would not need a traditional warrant to get access to this information, although I 
I think that is under considerable question after the uh, Carpenter v. United States case. Hmm. Uh, the reason I don't think they would need a warrant is the plain view doctrine. You're going out in public. Mm-hmm. Your license plate is there for the world to see. Anybody passing by could potentially take a picture. Uh, and I think this is emblematic of why the plain view doctrine sort of has to be reconsidered in a world where it's not one guy out there taking a picture. It's this massive system that is capable of taking uh, license plate information from 9 billion cars. Mm-hmm. When technology has changed to that extent, I think the law has to change as well. Our legal doctrines have to change uh, to ensure the same level of legal protection that existed before this technology was created. And this is sort of what scholars refer to as the equilibrium adjustment theory of, of the Fourth Amendment. And I think that's true here. You know, I think we're going to have to come up with a new theory for going out uh, in public, a new theory for this plain view doctrine that accounts for these types of systems where relatively effortlessly people are collecting what could be very personal data about the, uh, about us. Um, you know, Most of us would w- not want the government, nor would we want a private company to know everywhere we've been uh, in a given period of time. So it's, it's personal, it's private, and um, it's incredibly comprehensive. Mm. All right. Well, it's an interesting story for sure. Uh, it is time for us to move on to our listener on the line. Our listener this week is named Hannah. She calls in with a question about privacy and and what really constitutes a public or a private space. Let's have a listen. Hi, my name is Hannah from Gross Point, Michigan. What is the expectation of privacy in a quasi-public place, like like a stadium or a mall? You're on private property, um, but it's sort of a public place. Can they take pictures of me and use it without permission? Can you hold a protest at a place like that uh, without permission? Thanks very much. Ben, what do you think? So very good question. Um, Basically, the accepted legal definition for a Fourth Amendment search is if somebody has a subjective expectation of privacy and if that expectation is one that as a society we're willing to recognize as reasonable. Where I think the hypothetical of a stadium and a mall would potentially fail is on that first prong of the test, which is a subjective expectation of privacy. You are not doing anything to conceal yourself, as opposed to the seminal case on this issue where a person went to a phone booth, closed the phone booth, and presumably had a private conversation. Mm. You're not taking any overt action to protect yourself from being seen in public. Uh, And as a result, you really do have a diminished expectation of privacy. And I think in terms of the second prong of the test, it's not reasonable to expect that anything you do in a stadium with 60,000 people or at an Orioles game, 4,000 people uh, (laughs) is um, going to merit some constitutional protection. You have to take some sort of action to conceal yourself or your information in order for your privacy rights uh, to really be activated. Um, And I think... You know, that's something that people might not get instinctively. This might be private property, um, but you are forfeiting your expectation of privacy from going into an area in which you can be seen. What about the other side of it, the notion of these spaces as being kind of public squares, of being uh, these are places where we gather? So I could imagine some people saying, hey, we we want to protest uh, 
something going on in our community. Let's all meet at the local mall and we'll hold our protest there. Generally, private organizations have the right to restrict even free speech on their on their property. The hmm. Supreme Court over the years has come up with some exceptions to that if it is a an accepted public venue. Um, and you've actually seen that transfer into the digital space. There's hmm. this case as to um, whether President Trump actually had the ability to block people on Twitter. Oh, Twitter right. is a, a private company. Uh, theoretically, um, Trump as a as a private user could block anybody he wants. It wouldn't be a First Amendment violation. Mm-hmm. But the consideration in that case is that Twitter has become a a public space. That's where he announces policy proposals. Um, that's where uh, he makes some of his crucial presidential appointments. So right. because it's become a quasi-public space, there's been an increased uh, recognition on the part of courts to grant First Amendment free speech rights uh, in those places. Hmm. Um, so it's not like you could have a you know a protest at your personal enemy's house at three in the morning. I think we'd all agree that we can have time, place, and right. manner restrictions on <laughs> My that. My neighbor's driveway in the middle of the night, that would be out of bounds. It would be out of bounds. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, sometimes when my na- neighbor's dog is barking, I've wanted to do that. Right, right. Uh, but when you're talking about a, a place that is a traditional place of public gathering, courts have recognized the public significance of that space, and we've wanted to maintain uh, free speech, free assembly rights, even though uh, technically it is on private property. Hmm. So what's the bottom line there? Is if I if if I want to have a protest at my local shopping mall parking lot, uh, what, what odds are they're going to allow me, or are they going to ask me to move on? They will probably ask you to move on, mm-hmm. um, and they might seek to get you arrested for trespassing hmm. uh, if you are engaging in activity that's prohibited at that that central area. You are. Uh, technically trespassing, and they could call the police to get you arrested. Okay. Um, where you would get your relief is challenging the legal sufficiency of that arrest, which means you know if you want to go through that whole process to make a point about how the First Amendment should be recognized in quasi-public spaces, then by all means, you should do it. Right. But, Chances are that wasn't what you were protesting to begin with. Yeah. In the meantime, <laughs> you might, you know, spend a night in jail. So, right, right. Uh, mm. you know, if you're doing it for a larger purpose, more power to you. But, you know, it's a close enough question that I don't, you know, think that if police were called for somebody trespassing in public space, they would say, well... We have such significant First Amendment concerns based on antiquated Supreme Court case law that we're not going to remove this person um, from trespassing. Hmm. Uh, So, you know, probably not a risk you want to take unless you're you're really willing to suffer the consequences. Yeah. Well, thanks to our listener, Hannah, for calling in. We would love to hear your question, and we've got a couple of ways you could submit it. We've got a phone number. It's 410-618-3720. That's 410-618-3720. Or you can send us an audio file at caveat at thecyberwire.com. Coming up next, we have my interview with Kim Fan. She is a data security lawyer, and we're going to be discussing the effects of Nevada's new cybersecurity legislation that recently went into effect. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, 
The best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Kim Fan. She is a partner at the law firm of Ballard Spar. Among her specialties are privacy and data security. Our conversation centered on the new privacy legislation that's going into effect in Nevada. Here's my conversation with Kim Fan. You know, as a, as a privacy and data security lawyer who's been working in this space for over a dozen years, it's really interesting that right now is basically a, an evolution in how privacy is addressed. You know, data security became a big thing a few years ago in the wake of some of those big breaches, you know, Target, Sony, some of the big name ones. Um, but privacy really was kind of a sleeper issue until the GDPR, uh, which went into effect last year. In the wake of GDPR, California rushed to get CCPA passed, and it'll go into effect on January 1st. That's the new California law. There have been a ton of other states uh, who have introduced various versions of a privacy statute in the absence of a comprehensive federal privacy legislation. None of those have actually made it across the finish line except for Nevada. So Hmm. Washington had a bill, New Jersey had a bill, New York had a bill, and and none of them were able to get all the way you know, to the governor's desk. And uh, it is a very scaled down version of what was done in California. So it captures some of the concepts, but really uh, only focuses on very narrow aspects of it and implemented just the aspect with regard to online sales. It also provides for some pretty broad exclusions for regulated entities like financial institutions, healthcare providers, that kind of thing. Folks interchangeably consider privacy and data security the same thing, but they're really two sides of the same coin. Mm-hmm. They have to do with information, but you know, security is how you protect the information. Privacy is what you're doing with the information. Mm-hmm. And this addresses that aspect of it, the, the privacy aspect. It is very s- similar in the same vein as GDPR and CCPA, but I can understand why it's not getting as much press because it's actually a pretty reasonable law. It's uh, very tailored to a very specific issue, which is the online sale of data. It has some reasonable exemptions for certain types of businesses, and it is also just very limited to Nevada residents. Um, California Hmm. sort of getting a bigger splash because most companies have a pretty big footprint in California because the size and nature of that market, and maybe just not as many folks are in Nevada and maybe not worried about this as much. So can you take us through some of the details? What exactly are they covering? So it's very specific to operators of websites. So basically any .com, any .org, any .whatever else website that you might go to that uh, is run by some sort of company for a commercial purpose. Basically, if that company is collecting your data on their website and selling it for some sort of reason, Um, You have the right under this new Nevada statute to ask them not to do that. And and your request would have to be honored for all information they previously collected about you and any information they collect on you going forward. 
Now, is there anything in terms of uh, requiring any sort of opt-in or opt-out uh, defaults? No, there's not. I mean, under California's statute, there is an opt-in regime that's set up, certainly for minors, for individuals who are you know, under a certain age bracket, which are considered more vulnerable. And so there's an opt-in requirement uh, from their parent or guardian. Nevada doesn't set anything like that up. So there's no opt-out, opt-in sort of regime set up. Basically, there will be a process by which operators of websites have to give some sort of mechanism for consumers to submit their requests to not sell their information. It can be you know, an email address, it can be a 1-800 toll-free number, it can be, you know, a website link. Uh, there's a lot of flexibility in the statute for how companies want to set up how to receive these consumer requests. And then once they receive those requests, they just have to honor it going forward. Is there any sort of notification requirement? In other words, if a website is selling my information, do they have to notify me? So Nevada had a pre-existing statute. Uh, with regard to online disclosures. There's a few states that require that websites have to have online privacy policies. You've probably seen at the the bottom of each website, there's usually a link to the privacy policy, to the terms of use for the website, other legal disclosures. There's actually a few states that specifically require that you have that privacy policy link down there. California's one. Nevada's one, Delaware is one. So there are some existing requirements already in place in Nevada that are not impacted by this, but are affected and, you know, they're related in that the online privacy policy already has to disclose whether or not what information is being collected, what the operator of the website's doing with that information, who they're sharing that information with. So there's already some pre-existing requirements that would let you know whether or not a particular website is engaged in that type of activity. Hmm. Now, you mentioned that there are some limitations here in terms of uh, affecting only people in Nevada. Can you, can you outline what's going on there? Sure. I mean, obviously, websites can be visited by anyone all over the world, right? So if you set up a website, you, know, you could be based in Virginia, you could be based in Texas, you could be based in Michigan. And even though your website is for your company that's, you know, based in some localized region, you know, someone in the Ukraine, someone in Australia could technically come to that website. It's really very Nevada focused. Just what is the impact of your website on Nevada residents? Hmm. Well, suppose uh, I'm someone like, for example, Amazon, and I'm selling to folks who are in Nevada. Would this affect me? Yes, it would. It depends on what Amazon's doing, right? So mm. I'd have to look again at Amazon's you know, terms and what their privacy policy disclosed. But if Amazon is taking information about you know, my Prime membership or if I'm ordering you know, toilet paper or iced tea or you know, clothes or whatever I'm ordering from Amazon, if they're taking that information and using personal information about me, my you know, credit card that I used, the address that I shipped items to. They're taking that information and then selling it on to other businesses that license or sell that information to other parties. You might have heard of these types of entities. They're called data brokers. Mm -hmm. So if Amazon's selling my information to these data brokers, who are then going to sell it to who knows who else, right? Home Depot, Bed Bath & Beyond, you know, maybe they're selling my information to whoever else, right? Mm -hmm. If, If Amazon's engaged in that activity 
and it impacts me, and I'm a Nevada resident, which I'm not, but if I was, um, then this would apply. They would have to provide me with a, a mechanism for me to request that they not engage in those types of sales. Do you think that it's inevitable that we're going to end up with some sort of federal action on this? Oh, inevitable is far from the word I would use. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I think federal legislation in this area is a slim to none possibility. Really? Um, Yeah. You know, I take a look at, you know, I've been working in this space for a long time, and you look at data breach legislation, you know, the basic concept that if a company has some sort of data breach, they have to notify the people who are impacted by that. There's 50 state laws now in in effect addressing that. There's also D.C., Puerto Rico, the Virgin Islands, there's Guam. There's so many different disparate laws in place trying to address that one very discrete issue. And the Congress has never been able to get a single bill passed to address that despite the the patchwork of different requirements there are out there. If the Congress can't get that very one narrow issue resolved in a manner that you know makes everyone happy, they're not going to be able to pass comprehensive privacy legislation. It just seems insurmountable. I can see, you know, if, you know, say the the Democrats take the White House and they're able to flip the Senate and, you know, they're in power, you know, in both the executive and the legislative branch, they might be able to get data breach legislation passed, but even a broader privacy bill amongst the Democrats. I I just see too much infighting to to see that making its way all the way through. All right, Ben, what what do you think about that? So a very interesting discussion. I think Kim brought up a bunch of very interesting points. The thing that sticks out most to me is that the inability of Congress to get something done puts the onus on the states to create this legislation, which ends up being disadvantageous for companies. And because as she talks about, you have to either tailor your policies to comply with the strictest privacy statute, Mm. or you have to tailor your policies to apply to 50 different separate uh, privacy regimes. And I get that a lot of tech companies probably do not want robust federal privacy legislation. Um, I can completely understand that impulse. Um, But I think from a compliance perspective, it would be easier for them to have a federal framework. And because, you know, we have a Congress that frankly doesn't have the ability to pass many large pieces of legislation in a given year, um, that really has devolved uh, to the states. I think that's um, the result of institutional roadblocks um, and, and political polarization. I suppose it's a, it's a place where people could put pressure on their representatives that, uh, hey, you know, we, we need some activity here because um, you're creating extra work for us by having us navigate 50 different uh, policies here. Absolutely. I mean, it's sort of like a, a question of scale for these companies. I mean, mm-hmm. do you want to have to hire a local Nevada lobbying shop to go in and, and, and uh, lobby the Nevada state legislature before, you know, it goes to the next state? Then you're in Maryland and you have to mm-hmm. um, lobby the Maryland legislators. Uh, Whereas I think the federal government could really preempt a lot of these um, state privacy statutes if they were to get involved. Um, And just in terms of like how Congress could actually accomplish something like this, I I bring up the Cloud Act, uh, which passed as part of a large appropriations bill, omnibus appropriations bill in uh, the spring, which was attached as sort of a rider. And I kind of think like if you're going to have 
strong data uh, data privacy legislation. It's hard for me to see that succeeding as a standalone bill, and I think um, Kim got to that uh, to that point pretty well. Um, but you know, if it's something that the industry thinks would be advantageous, consumers think would be advantageous, um, you know, it's kind of something you might want to sneak into a larger piece of legislation at some point. Hmm. I also think about that small mom and pop shop who's got got their store in a strip mall somewhere selling uh, you know dog food and dog cat toys and um, you know, collars and bones and things and and them having to navigate these sorts of things you know maybe I've got a little mail order business going in addition to my retail store and now I've got to worry about who I'm selling to and where and what information I'm gathering. Um, that that could be a burden for a small business. Absolutely, and it actually ends up disadvantage. Those types of regulations really do disadvantage uh, small businesses, which in turn give an advantage to the companies that can afford to hire, you know, big compliance officers. Now, mm. I don't think Kim got into any exemptions, and I haven't done the research myself on, uh, you know, what sized business is subject to these regulations. Mm. Anybody who can put up a public .dot com .dot org website. You think about not mom and pop shops, but like UNLV, for example. They mm. can hire, I'm sure they can hire compliance officers, but they're not a multinational company. I mean, they have finite resources. Right. Um, so, you know, f even though they might qualify as like a larger institution and be subject to this law, it still is going to be a, a pretty large cost obligation. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that can be a real detriment to, to companies. The reason I think states feel that they have an ability to do this is companies aren't going to give up on conducting online retail in the state of Nevada. I mean, you just can't lose all of those customers. Mm -hmm. So Nevada has that as as leverage. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's not as much leverage as, say, California, where you'd be cutting out the market of the equivalent of the sixth largest uh, world economy. Mm -hmm. uh, but Nevada is a, a reasonably sized state. You got Las Vegas, right? Um, got a professional hockey team and, and soon a <laughs> National Football League team. So uh, it's a it's a fast growing state, and you know you don't want to cut yourself off of that market. So because the Nevada legislature knows that Amazon isn't going to stop selling to customers in Nevada, they they have the leverage to to do something like this. Hmm. now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and Zero Trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their SASE journey, visit netskope.com. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our thanks to the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security for their participation. You can learn more at mdchhs.com. Our coordinating producers are Kelsey Bond and Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening.
Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily, and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us. 